Lord Jesus, our prayer this morning is that you would be with us, that you would be present, working on us, that you would be redirecting our attention, Lord, away from all the distractions that we've been bombarded with over the last few days, and that our hearts would be turned to you this morning in order that we could focus on you and come to a deeper understanding of why you came to save us and what that means for us. May this time honor you and bless you and glorify you. Amen. Don't make promises that you don't intend to keep. Do we love promises? Do we, do we love people who are true to their word, who, who we can trust? You know, when they say something, it's, a, you know, it's like money in the bank. We like that, right? How many times have we all said the words, don't make promises that you don't intend to keep? I mean, we say it to our kids. We say it to our spouses. We say it to our friends. We probably say it to our politicians, although, um, strangely enough, I suspect that we may not exactly hold that same, uh, that last group uh, to the same level of accountability as we hold the other three groups. But who hasn't uh, had somebody make a promise to you and then break it? We've all experienced it. We've all gone through it. And the more we trust somebody, the more it can be just completely frustrating to see them not come through on their promises, maybe even painful. And the, the, more, uh, the more we think about it, the more frustrated we get, the less likely we are to trust that person again or anyone in the future because we have this kind of saying, you know, uh, you know, lie to me once or let me down once, shame on you, let me down twice, shame on me for even trusting you. So that, that's kind of a mentality that our culture adopts. Uh, author and novelist Stephen Richards maybe said it best when he wrote, uh, quote, promises are only as strong as the person who makes them. The ancient Greek playwright Aeschylus, I think I'm pronouncing that right, it's a bunch of letters all jumbled together, and Aeschylus is the best sense I can make out of this. He once expressed similar sentiment uh, writing that, quote, it is not the oath that makes us believe the man, but the man, the oath. And how ironic is it that Aeschylus is known among playwrights and drama, you know, people who are in drama, as the father of tragedies. Indeed, it can feel like such a tragedy. It can be such a tragedy to be on the receiving end of a broken promise, especially when it comes from somebody who once held our trust, but apparently it seems like they didn't value our trust all that much. If you have something that you value, you take care of it. You don't break it. You're a good steward with it. But when you don't value something, you just let it go to whatever. You let it go to whatever. And so sometimes that's how it seems like somebody holds our trust. And the more we trust someone, the more inclined we are to take them for their word. Conversely, the less, uh, the, the less we trust somebody, the less likely we are to take them for their word. Now, the promise of, of restoration, of God coming down and restoring the relationship between God and man as perfectly as it was at the beginning. It was made uh, following the fall of creation in Genesis chapter 3 to the kingship of David who was promised by God that his descendant would create, would establish this kingdom that would last forever, that would never end, to the timeline that was given to Daniel of when the Messiah would come into Jerusalem to the 400 years of absolute and complete silence between the books of Malachi and Matthew. Throughout this whole span of time, 
hundreds and hundreds, thousands of years, God had repeatedly promised that he would send the Messiah into the world. And so Israel had to wait. And so they waited. And they waited. And they waited. And waited. And it wasn't that the people of Israel didn't believe in God necessarily. Most of them did. Uh, they, they were as flawed as any one of us. You know, they, they had their flaws. We all do. Uh, but in the same way that our flaws don't have to prevent us from believing in God, the people of Israel, most of the people of Israel, believed in God. They knew the stories of how God had delivered uh, the, the, the Hebrews, the, the Israelites, from slavery to the Egyptians to the Babylonians and others. But would he continue to deliver them? The nation had gone through unbelievable trials over the ages. He had prom- and God had promised that he would be uh, that, that part of what the Messiah would do would be to free them from oppression, free them from slavery. But while the people of Israel believed in God, the real question about 2,015 years ago was not, "Do you believe in God?" The real question was, "Do you believe God?" Do you believe him? Do you believe that God is faithful and true? This is following, remember, 400 years of silence. Do you believe that he's faithful? Do you believe that he's still good on his word? These promises that he made hundreds and hundreds of years ago are still going to be fulfilled. Do you believe that God will deliver you? And that question is the hinge upon which Christianity turns even to this very day. The story is told of two slaves who were trying to escape their slave master in the dead of winter. And as they're fleeing through the woods, as they're running away as fast as they can, they come to this river that's covered with a sheet of ice. And they wouldn't be able to escape slavery without getting across this river somehow. The first man knew that the ice was there, but he didn't trust it to hold his weight. He'd rather return to slavery than die of hypothermia. And so, uh, unable to bear the cold temperatures out in the wilderness for long, he returned to his slave master and to a life of slavery. The second man, however, trusted the strength of the ice to bear his weight, and thus he walked right across the icy river and found freedom, never to be a slave again. And that's a picture of what saving faith in God is. It's knowing, okay, it's there. I believe that God is there, but it's taking it a step further, and it's acting on that belief. You believe that the ice is there, and what are you going to do? Are you going to step on it, or are you going to go back to slavery? If the question is, will God keep his promises, our response is to take a step out onto the ice, certain that it will hold our weight, certain that God will keep his his promises. But how long, how long do you wait for a promise to be kept? I mean, we've all had promises made uh, made to us. How long are you supposed to wait for somebody to keep their word? How long? You see, the longer we wait for a promise to be kept, the more we tend to question the one who made the promise the more likely we are to start doubting over time that the person is going to fulfill their promise. And as the people waited for the coming of the promised Messiah, they were probably questioning God's faithfulness. After all, they hadn't heard from him in 400 years. They're under incredible Roman, uh, Roman Empire oppression. They had to be asking, can we trust God to do what he said he was going to do? 
Can we trust God to fulfill his promises? And likewise, God has made a lot of promises to us in his word. And the Bible is absolutely filled with them. There's no doubt about that. I mean, if you read the Bible, you can't miss the fact that God is practically making one promise after another through his word. And we still await the fulfillment of many of those things. In fact, one person counted 3,573 promises uh, made by God in the Bible. That's a lot of promises. That's a lot of promises. Considering that there are 66 books, if there are 3,500, I mean, uh, promises, I mean, do the math. That's a lot of promises, a lot of promises. But considering that we're still waiting for God to fulfill many of the promises that he's made to us in his word, including the promise of coming back and establishing an earthly reign someday, there's a lot that you and I can learn in terms of waiting on the Lord, waiting on the Lord to fulfill the promises that he's made by studying the Christmas story and what led up to it. One of the great promises of the Bible that was made was made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. We read this in verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That's a promise that God made him. Now, was Abraham obedient? Not exactly. In the verses that follow, we find that he loaded up the cart with everything that he could fit, including his wife, his nephew. Lots of people came with him. God told him, you go from your country and from your kindred. That would include a nephew. He wasn't exactly obedient, but he went. He did go. And so we get to verse 7 and we read this. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. As, as he's surveying the land that God has led him to. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now by the time we get to chapter 15, a lot has happened. It's been, it's been years since this promise was made. And we see the promise still hasn't been fulfilled. Abraham's life hasn't been easy. He's been all over the place. He's gone down to Egypt. He's come back up. And we read this in uh, Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. After these things... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So you get the sense Abraham's been waiting, or Abram, whichever, he later gets renamed Abraham. Abram's been waiting a long, long, long time, but he's remained faithful to God. He's starting to grow impatient by the time we reach chapter 15. None of this seems to be making any sense to him. God is going to start this great nation that he's, been, that he's been promising, that he's been talking about. And the couple that he chooses, the people that he chooses to, to be the foundation for this nation are well past their childbearing years. They're, I mean, by today's standards, they would be senior citizens. I mean, if, if you're going to start a nation that's going to bless all the earth, um, wouldn't you start with a young, fertile couple that you know, uh, it, it, you know, can produce maybe a dozen, maybe even two dozen kids? Uh, don't you think that would be the plan that we would go with? I mean, if we were doing it, that's what we'd think. Oh, we, 
step number one, we got to find a couple who can give us a lot of kids by the time they get past their childbearing years. But God chose this old couple who had never been able to have a child. Why would God choose them? None of this is making any sense to Abram. But you know what? He's trusting God anyway. He's going with the plan anyway. He knows what God has said. He knows that he has, he's actually heard from the Lord. And that's good enough for him. That's, it's just knowing that God is good, knowing that God is leading him, knowing that God has made this promise is good enough for him. He's followed him to this point. Uh, he spent several years, in fact, uh, going where the Lord leads. And this gives us the first principle that we need to understand when it comes to waiting on the Lord. And that is that waiting on the Lord is never easy. It's never easy. We, we, we like it now. We, we like promises made as soon as possible, you know, fulfilled as soon as possible. We don't like to wait. Of course, the means by which God planned to bless all the earth through Abraham's uh, lineage remained something of a mystery to the Israelites. They didn't know exactly how that was going to happen. They just knew that God had promised that it would. Uh, and they didn't know when it was going to happen. They just knew that God said that it was going to happen. All they knew was that God had made this promise. And so they trusted him to fulfill that promise, even though they were sort of left wandering around in the dark when it came to the specific details of how this was all going to work out. It, it was like looking through a, a window that's been stained and stained and stained, and all you can see is maybe an outline. All they had was this basic outline of what was going to happen, and they trusted God. They trusted him. And as years turned into decades and decades turned into centuries, the Israelites would face slavery in Egypt, countless battles before they, they entered into the promised land. They, they faced being exiled by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. And finally, in the birth of, uh, or the era of the birth of the Messiah, they faced incredible oppression on behalf of the Roman Empire. Waiting on God was difficult. It was trying. It was not easy. And I imagine that there were several times along the way, while they're waiting through these decades and, and centuries, eons almost, uh, it, I'm sure that there were some times where the faithful people of Israel must have been thinking, you know, now would be a really good time for God to step in and act. Have you guys ever thought that? Now would be a really good time for God to get working. Now would be a good time for God to fulfill his promises. Eras of incredible oppression and slavery came and went, though, and God didn't step in to fulfill his promises yet. Yet. God had the big picture in view while the people of Israel could only see what was going on in front of them. In the story, in the book called The Story, which is kind of a, a paraphrase of the Bible, they call it the upper story and the lower story. If you imagine a building where if you're on the ground level and you see that traffic is congested, you have no idea why, but if you're on the top level, you can see for miles in each direction, and you can see, okay, down there there's an accident, and that's what is causing all of this. But down at the floor level, which is where we are, we're in the lower story, we can't see the forest for the trees. All we see is what's right in front of us. Likewise, the Israelites, all they could do was trust in God's goodness, trust in his faithfulness, trust in the promises that he'd make, that he'd made. And likewise, there will be seasons in all of our lives 
where we can't make any sense of God's timing. If, if the longer you've walked with the Lord, the more surely you are to experience this. It's, it's a guarantee. If you, if you spend years walking with the Lord, it's going to happen. We'll pray and we'll pray and we'll pray for God to act and very well may see absolutely nothing happen as a result of our prayers. It happens. It happens all the time. In fact, sometimes the good shepherd will lead us through valleys, lead us through difficult seasons, lead us through the refiner's fire as a means of delivering his people to richer pastures. And along the way, we may, we may very well think that we're, we're seeing some, some really nice, green, lush pastures off on the side. And well, that would be a great place for the, for the good shepherd to let us stop and graze and only to find out that the good shepherd isn't stopping there. He's leading us elsewhere. His timing is just beyond our understanding. His wisdom is beyond our comprehension. And the result is that we often feel frustrated or anxious, or helpless when it comes to God and his promises. But he never promised. This is, this is something he never promised. Out of those 3,500 promises in the Bible, there's, there's one thing he never promised, and that is that trusting in him and following him was going to be a walk in the park. He never, ever promised that this was going to be easy. In fact, he's given us plenty of very clear indications in his word that it's going to be difficult sometimes incredibly difficult to follow him and remain faithful to him. But God's people have always needed to trust him through difficult seasons. It's not new to our generation. It's not new to us. There's nothing new under the sun. People have always needed to trust God in difficult seasons. We need to remember something that's crucial to all this. The fact that it's difficult and often confusing doesn't mean that God is not holding his end of the deal. It doesn't mean that he's not being faithful to his promises. Rather, we have to remember that the way and the time in which he fulfills his, his promises are things that our finite minds often just cannot entirely comprehend. And it's often only when we look in the rearview mirror of life, you know what I mean? When we're looking back on our life where we see, wow, there's the footsteps of God. There, there's God, what he's doing. I can see it very clearly in the rearview mirror. Trusting in God's faithfulness and his promises. That is something that he will teach us to do. There's a professor named Sanford DeVoe. Uh, he's a researcher at the University of Toronto. He developed an experiment to determine whether or not our fast food culture, if you will, uh, was changing our lives in ways uh, beyond just our eating habits. There's no question that Fast food uh, changed, changed the way that we eat, but was it changing more than that? That's what Professor DeVoe set out to find. And so he and another colleague conducted a series of experiments in which researchers would subliminally flash corporate logos of, uh, of fast food chains like McDonald's and Burger King and KFC, Taco Bell, Subway, and Wendy's. And a control group uh, saw images, they saw other images, but they didn't see the corporate logos of these fast food restaurants. And when the two groups were asked to do an unrelated task after being shown either the corporate, the, the, the fast food logos or not shown the fast food logos, the fast food group tried to complete it much faster than the non-fast food group. Interesting. 
And the results were so interesting that it got them wondering even more. And so they decided to expand the experiment and see if there were even other ways that fast food logos affected people. And so in another experiment, what they found was that uh, flashes of fast food uh, corporate logos made students less able to sit back and enjoy listening to music. They conducted a third experiment and found that people exposed to these fast food logos were significantly less likely to save money than they were to spend it. Interesting. And so based on these experiments, DeVoe has concluded that fast food helps us save time, uh, but even just thinking about fast food restaurants can make us live with more speed and with less patience. DeVoe said, quote, Fast food culture doesn't just change the way we eat, but it can also fundamentally alter the way we experience time, end quote. His claims that the impatience prompted by our fast food culture and mindset stops us from from smelling the roses is so true. It's difficult to wait on the Lord. It's always been difficult to wait on the Lord, but it's maybe even more difficult in our instant gratification fast food culture today. Nevertheless, it's part of how we relate to God. And because it's part of how we relate to God, we must learn to wait on the Lord even when it's difficult, even when it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, even when we think we've got a better idea. We must learn to embrace this reality. Why? That brings us to our next principle, and that is that waiting on the Lord is always worth it. Waiting on the Lord is always worth it. The fact that we are finite and he is infinite should itself be sufficient reason to trust in God. Just recognizing the fact, man, okay, all I can see is is the forest. God sees, all I can see is the trees. God sees the whole forest and the whole earth beyond that. Often what we see in Scripture is that people have an expectation for exactly how things are going to turn out, or maybe even just what they think is a a rough idea of how things are going to turn out, but God has something totally different in mind. Further, if things would have gone according to man's thoughts and man's plans, it would have been absolutely disastrous, while God's plans and his thoughts are always always the best way it's always working for the utmost glory of his name and for the good of his people and i can't imagine that anyone had thought that the messiah would be born in this lowly manger nobody could have seen that coming with you know with with the unmistakable aroma of uh, fresh animal waste permeating the air. I mean, guys, imagine that, you know, your wife's going into labor and you want to give her the ideal birthing environment. How many of you guys would would want it to smell like fresh animal waste? No, not if you love your wife anyway. Don't don't answer that if your answer is yes. (laughs) But but that's uh, that's something we never would have seen coming. Uh, Never would have, but God planned it that way. And who among us can deny that when God's timing or his provision doesn't look or, or happen at the time we, we thought it would, it's so easy for us to become discouraged, frustrated, and, and maybe even angry. Maybe even angry. I, I mean, I would say that there are a lot of people who, uh, who walk away from the faith because I'm just so tired of waiting. I'm so tired of things not turning out the way I thought they would or should. And what happens, you know, we we start wondering if God is going to actually stick to his promises 
And yet the truth is, the longer we walk with him and the more deeply we come to know him, the more we see that his timing and his provisions, his methods, it's all exponentially better than we ever could have imagined or orchestrated on our own. And that's why one of the phrases that's repeated throughout the Bible is wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. There's a reason that it's almost always found in the imperative tense, meaning it's a, it's a command. Wait on the Lord. Do this. And the reason that it's in the imperative tense is because we don't automatically do it. Maybe we don't even want to do it, uh, and therefore we need to be instructed that this is what we need to do. We need to wait on the Lord. And that's why the psalmist says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. He says it twice, which is just the Hebrew form of emphasis, underlining, putting it in bold letters, if you can imagine that. Isaiah wrote this. He said, I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. That's from Isaiah 8.17. I will wait for the Lord who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Oh, man, that we would just have the wisdom to wait. Each one of us, at some point in our lives, has probably experienced exactly what Isaiah here is describing. It feels like God is far away. It feels like he must be hiding himself from us. And so we start wondering, where is he? When's he going to do what he said he was going to do? And the temptation when this happens is to try and take everything into our own hands. Been there and done that more than once. Let me just say that. It can be a complete recipe for disaster. It's so tempting for us to think that if it doesn't happen exactly the way we thought it should Wow, it's so tempting for us to just get completely frustrated. But Isaiah reminds us to wait. Just wait. The reason that it's so hard for us is because it means surrendering control. Surrendering all control. And it's easier, let's face it, it's easier to be a control freak than it is to surrender all control of things that relate to us and our lives. Later in the book, Isaiah goes on to give us what's probably the most, probably the most famous verse when it comes to uh, verses about waiting on the Lord. He writes in Isaiah 40, 31, But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Waiting on the Lord is not easy, but it's always worth it. It's always worth it. Isaiah tells us that there is a payoff for waiting. But before we go any further, we, we should probably develop something of an understanding of what it means exactly to wait. Does it mean stay right where you are and don't do anything? Don't, don't move, just, just stay right here and wait? Does it mean you know, stop all things? Does it mean uh, just keep, your, uh, keep an ear turned to him? Does it mean hoping? What exactly does it mean to wait on the Lord. And the answer is found by actually taking a closer word, a uh, closer look at the word for wait. Closer look at that. The first thing that we should know about this word is that it means to look for something with an expectation, with a certainty of, of seeing it, uh, expecting to see it. It means to hope. But it doesn't fit our usual definition of waiting. The Hebrew word for wait, as in I'm 
waiting for the pastor to finish up this sermon so that I can go get some good Christmas shopping deals. Uh, that's a different word. That word is yeshab. The word that we find here in Isaiah 40.31, however, is actually connected to the action of gathering, strangely enough. In fact, the, the secondary definition of the word that Isaiah uses here is to bind together or collect. Interesting. And so thus, for the Hebrew, because a lot of the words in Hebrew were associated with actions, so that when you saw the word, when you heard the word, you would think of the action. Very simple language. So for the Hebrew, the picture of waiting is to gather strands while making a rope. And if you're wondering what that has to do with patience, be patient. Hear me out, because it's important that we understand this. Uh, let's say that you've been, been praying to God for something in your life or, or for someone in your, uh, in your life that you love. And you're waiting for him to do something because you're, you're praying and praying. You've been praying for weeks, maybe months, maybe years. You've been praying. And as you continue to pray, you start to wonder, when or if God will move? If or when God will take action in response to your prayers? Where is he? He's busy collecting and gathering strands. He hears your prayers. He hears our prayers. You can't see it, but he is taking action. He's not hiding his face. He's not far away. He's near. One of those strands might be teaching you to surrender control to him. One of those strands might be teaching you to develop a stronger and a closer walk with him. One of those strands might be developing a better prayer life. One of those uh, strands might be teaching you to just trust in him. Maybe one of those strands is teaching you or your friend that you're praying for to, to be better with your finances, to manage your finances more wisely. Do you get the picture? There are all these things that God is gathering together. While we're waiting on God for act, for God to act, he's already acting. Maybe not in the way that you would hope for or expect. Maybe he's not on stage. Maybe he's setting the stage. Maybe he's busy behind the scenes. Some strands we might see. Most others we might not until we can see him in the rearview mirror, until we can see all these strands gathered together. But the word picture that we get from this word wait is that when God has collected the strands that he knows he needs, he'll weave them all together in a way that we can't possibly miss for the glory of his name and for the good of his people. Waiting on the Lord is about trusting him, knowing that he's working maybe in ways that we can't see. And so we release our hopes, we release our expectations of things that, we, that we've built on our, our understanding, and we just trust the situation in God's hands. He's not a short-order cook. He's like a gourmet cook who's got several pans on the stovetop all going at once so that he can prepare this incredible five-course meal. He's like an artist painting an ex exquisite masterpiece that doesn't really look like much of anything until he puts the finishing touches on it sometimes. He's a rope maker weaving together a beautiful, complicated, unbreakable rope that can weather the strongest storms. Friends, we are that rope. And while you're praying, while we're praying, God is working. It might not seem like it, but God is working on you, on me, on the people that we're praying.
praying for. It might not be exactly what we're hoping for or expecting, but it's to our greatest possible good for the glory of his name. And there's a strange man. This is a strange story. But this guy named Russell Edward Herman um, died in 1995, and he left this will behind. He was just a, a common man who left trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars uh, to organizations he'd never been affiliated with, cities he had never visited, and people whom he had never met. Sounds like a great guy, right? I, mean, I, I wish I would have known this guy um, until you read a little bit further. Um, for example, one time... Um, the, the, the Chicago Tribune reported on how Herman had left a small town in Illinois called Cave in Rock. Never even heard of it. it it's got to be somewhere on the map, but I've never even heard of it. Uh, he left them a whopping $2.41 billion. When the mayor heard of this, he thought, wow, there's a lot we could do with that. But then he got word, it's not coming. You're not getting it. He also, by the way, left $6 trillion to the Federal Reserve for the sake of paying off the national debt. Keep in mind, that was 1995. Uh, he left another $6 trillion, uh, for the United States Treasury for the sake of getting the nation back on track. And he left $189 trillion for, quote, the rehabilitation of states' rights. And as great as all of this might have seemed, the reality was that, unfortunately, this guy, Herman, didn't have trillions of dollars. In fact, he didn't have millions of dollars. In fact, he didn't have thousands of dollars. As the Chicago Tribune reported, quote, the magnanimity of the Herman Will is astounding, particularly in light of the fact that apparently the only thing of any value that Herman possessed upon his death, August 29th, was joint ownership in a battered 1983 Oldsmobile tornado, end quote. He probably had a fantastic sense of humor. He probably would have been you know, a pretty funny guy to hang around with. Uh, he probably had the best of intentions, but he didn't have the ability or the resources to turn his intentions, to turn his promises into a reality. He made trillions of dollars worth of promises that he had no way and no intention of keeping. And this is the very opposite of God. In God's greatness, there is no resource, there's no Nothing in the entire universe that isn't completely at his disposal. And there's no promise that he cannot or will not keep. He has both the desire and the ability to fulfill every single one of them. Listen to what Peter had to say about God's faithfulness. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And so Peter tells us that God's promises are not only great, but he says that they are precious. And I love the fact that Peter uses this word precious to describe the promises of God, because that's not a word that Peter uses lightly. In fact, if you look at First and Second Peter, Peter only calls five things precious, only five things. Number one, our faith. Number two, the blood of Jesus. Number three, Jesus as the precious stone. Uh, number four, Jesus as our precious Lord. And number five, here he refers to the promises of God as precious. 
What is it that makes God's promises precious? It's the fact that God is able and willing to carry them out, to fulfill them. God is faithful, and he wants us to learn to rely on his promises. He wants us to know that they can hold the weight of the world upon them and not be shaken and not be broken. Peter tells us that through these promises, you and I have become partakers of the divine nature. What a wonderful thing. In other words, through his promises, he's promised to make us more and more and more like his son, Jesus. In order to do what? He sent Jesus to do what? To free us. To free us. To to fulfill that promise of freeing us from oppression, from blindness, from being in a broken relationship with God. Peter says that by God's promises, we've escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. The corrupt nature that you and I were born with has no right to dictate our actions any longer. That nature was crucified with Jesus in order that it would no longer be a cruel master over us any longer. All who trust in Jesus are like people who were once slaves, who have been set free from the obligation of doing horrible things. And this was a promise that God made, and this was a promise that God fulfilled. It's a promise that he continues to make to this very day. Deny yourself, trust in Jesus, turn away from your sin, and you will be set free. You will be set free. Paul says this, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of, God, of time had come, God sent forth his Son. When the fullness of time had come. For hundreds upon hundreds of years, God had been promising and promising and promising that he would send the Messiah, who would turn out to be his son, himself, to set his people free and to heal their spiritual brokenness. And I'm sure that there were times when his people felt like, man, this has just taken too long. Now, God, why don't you come now? Why don't you do your thing now? Maybe they were starting to think, oh, Maybe it's not really going to happen. But the Bible tells us that it all happened by God's timing. When the fullness of time had come, waiting on God's promises is not easy. But waiting on God's promises is worth it. And one of the beautiful things that we see in the story of the birth of Jesus is that God can and always does keep his promises. The timing might not be exactly how we want it to be. The circumstances may look different than we envisioned it. Don't be surprised if it looks completely different from what you had hoped for or expected. But know this, know this, God is always at work, gathering strands behind the scenes with the end result of fulfilling his promises in mind. And so if the question is, can we trust God? Will God be true to his promises? That's a question that all of Christianity rests on. And it was answered over 2,000 years ago in the form of a baby being born in a manger. And it was answered again about 33 years later when Jesus rose from the grave, having conquered death once and for all. God is faithful. And God always keeps his promises. Our job is to wait. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for humbling yourself and becoming like one of us. 
Not that you had to, not that you were obligated to, but you knew, Lord, that it was the only way. That it was the only way to set things right between us and you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would increase our faith, increase our trust in your promises. We wait for you, Lord. And as we wait for you, we know that you're working. Help us, Lord, to see those things in the rearview mirror of life so that we can attest to your glory and to your wonders, the way that you work in ways that we never could have foreseen. Thank you for humbling yourself in order to bring us to your side. Keep us to work This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.